like to take a look at Acts 10.38 for just a little while this afternoon. Acts 10.38. This verse forms the, or forms part of a message that the Apostle Peter was preaching unto a man by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion, which means he was a soldier who was in charge of a hundred men. He was a Gentile. And we find that the Bible gives a description of him that makes us understand clearly that he was a born-again child of God in this experience. We find he feared God with all his house. He prayed to God always. He gave alms to the people, and he was a devout man. Later, we find others giving additional testimony and said that he had good report of all the nations, and he was a just man. There are six things said about Cornelius that cannot be said about an unregenerated man. Not any of the six can be said about it. All six are evidences of the new birth. All six are indications and strong evidences that this man had experienced the new birth before he ever had this encounter with Peter. Now, Peter, of course, had never met Cornelius, and he was on a housetop, went up there to pray about the sixth hour of the day, which would be noon, and that's when God let down a sheet knit in four corners with all manner of four-footed beasts, clean and unclean. And he told Peter, Peter to rise, slay, and eat. Peter, being a Jew, said, Lord, uh, nothing ever uncommon, unclean is entering my mouth. And he did this three times and told Peter, whatsoever I have uh, you know, cleansed, call not thou common, unclean. Now, he was teaching Peter that Cornelius being a Gentile, the Jews looked upon the Gentiles as being unclean. They looked at the Gentiles as if they were, were just dogs. And he's letting Peter know, I got a people among the Gentiles. Cornelius is my child. I've cleansed him. Don't call uncommon or unclean that which I have cleansed. And so Peter got the message. And then Peter had a, you know, uh, three men came to his door. He answered it. They told him to come and gave him the message. And Peter went and met Cornelius. And after talking to Cornelius, we find that Peter said, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Now, important to understand, just because at this point that Peter perceived this, that's not what made that true. It was true before Peter ever perceived it. Something is not true or not true based upon whether you believe it or not. Your belief doesn't make anything untrue become true. It doesn't make anything true become untrue if you don't believe it. It's either true or it's not true. So Peter saw what the Lord was teaching him, gave him the lesson. I perceive of a truth that God is no respect of persons, but he that worketh righteousness is accepted with him. When he understood who Cornelius was, the testimony about Cornelius, Peter understood, yes, he's a Gentile, but he's one of God's children. And so as part of the additional message, we come to Acts 10, 38. It says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Now, I was emphasizing this morning the importance of God being with you in connection to our text in Job 5, 19, where he says, for he delivereth, um, you know, uh, in our six troubles, he delivereth in the six troubles, 
and, uh, and then in the seventh, no evil shall touch him. Here we find, to me, it's kind of unusual, especially if you read it for the first time, how that God was with Jesus. You hear preached all the time that Jesus was God. That's true. He was God manifest in the flesh. That was true. But he was also the son of man. He was humanity and also divinity. And here we find Peter says that God was with him, with his son. But let's start at the beginning. Which is how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that expression, Jesus of Nazareth, is never mentioned after the book of Acts. That's where Jesus was from. That's how Jesus was identified from anybody else in that day whose name was Jesus. He was from the town of Nazareth. Um, so you do not find that title given him after the book of Acts. Four gospels in the book of Acts, and you don't read Jesus of Nazareth anymore. He's referred to by Paul as Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, a number of combinations uh, Jesus identified by the New Testament writers, but never is Jesus of Nazareth anymore after the book of Acts. But he says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. Now when a man occupied an office, such as a prophet, priest, or a king, he would be anointed. Uh, Samuel was a prophet who anointed Saul and David as kings over Israel. When a man was set aside as king, again, it was appropriate that he would be anointed literally with little oil. Or if he was a priest or a prophet, he'd be anointed literally with oil. But the Lord Jesus Christ was anointed, but not literally with oil. He was anointed with the Holy Ghost and with power. And I think you see this when he was baptized, as recorded for us in Matthew 3. When Jesus came to the River Jordan, John the Baptist was baptizing people, and Jesus came there and told John to baptize him. And John said, Lord, he says, I have need to be baptized of thee. And the Lord said, Suffer to be so, John, because suffer to be so, for it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. This is the fulfillment of righteousness, what you're going to do. Now, we know the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't baptized because he was a sinner, because he was not. He wasn't baptized because he come confessing, repenting, uh, confessing his sins, repenting like everybody else, because he was not. But the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized to set forth, one, an example. Number two, to foreshadow what he would accomplish. Three and a half years from that point, he would be crucified, be taken off the cross, put into a barred tomb, and then after three days and three nights, he'd be resurrected. And that's what baptism is. Water baptism symbolizes the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the beginning of his ministry, uh, you might say in symbolic form, Jesus was telling us what he was going to accomplish. He was going to die. He was going to be buried. He was going to be resurrected. His baptism illustrated that. When that happened, heaven opened up. And a voice rang out saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the Spirit of God descended in the bodily form and shape of a dove, and it settled on the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, I believe, is the anointing, the first anointing we take notice of right here. The Holy Spirit came upon him, and then the voice rang out, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. If you go to Hebrews 1, 9, 8 and 9, you'll find where the writer tells us that the scepter of God's righteousness, or the scepter of his kingdom, is his righteousness. All kingdoms had that which would identify the kingdom. Like today, all nations have a flag. 
uh, you know, it identifies if we're America or Great Britain or Germany or whatever nation it might be. And so a scepter was kind of like a, a shield or something that would give identification. So what identifies the Lord's kingdom? It's, it's righteousness. It's righteousness. He says, for thou hatest iniquity and lovest righteousness. God just doesn't wink at iniquity. God hates iniquity. God hates sin. Iniquity is just kind of a, a, a worse form of sin, so to speak. <laughs> you know, uh, all, this, all sin may not be iniquity per se, but all iniquity, I can assure you, is sin. Thou hatest iniquity, and he loveth righteousness. Okay, then it says, uh, For thou hast anointed him with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Now, Jesus was anointed with oil, but not with literal oil. He was anointed with the oil of gladness. He made the Father glad. He made the Father happy. The Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Oh, that he could say that about you or about I. That'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? If we felt like we'd live the day in which the Father would say, This is one of my children, and I'm, I'm well pleased. When he said, This is my Son, whom I'm well pleased, he's saying, I couldn't be more pleased. Have you ever heard somebody say that about somebody? Oh, are you happy? Oh, I, I couldn't be more pleased than to know that he is doing so-and-so or going so Well, I'm telling you, God could not be more pleased than he was with his son. He wasn't partially pleased. He wasn't just a little bit pleased. He was completely and totally pleased with his son. So why would he be? Because his son <laughs> lived a perfect life. His son come to do the will of the Father... And he did it completely, nothing short. You know, I've said this before, when Mary, the first child Mary had being a virgin was the Lord Jesus Christ. But she had several children after that. And I can just hear her now saying to some of those other children, why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> you know, some parents are charged with favoritism, but I'm sure I, Jesus never gave her a problem. Uh, Jesus is easy to, to raise up, whatever, you know. Why can't you be more like Jesus? He never does anything wrong. I don't know if she ever said that or not. I bet she thought it. I'm sure she was in for a shock after raising Jesus and then raising a bunch of sinners after him, you know, and his children. But anyway, God anointed Jesus Nazareth to the Holy Ghost and with power, and he went about doing good. Now, you've heard me say before, these are five words that capture the life of Jesus. Now, you read his biography in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you read about what he did in his daily life. You'll find him doing three things. He was always going about teaching, preaching, or performing miracles. That, that happened every single day that Jesus lived. All right? He went about doing good. That's the good that he was doing. Now, by nature, man does not do good. Romans 3, Paul says, there's none good. No, not one. Jesus did what man, by his nature, could not do. Man, his human nature, cannot do good. He cannot do any good. But the Lord Jesus Christ could not do anything but good. There is nothing that Jesus ever did that was not good. Because he's essentially good. His divine nature is perfect and righteous and holy. He's essentially good. And were it not for his spirit abiding in us, we could do nothing good. But we can do good because of the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts and in our lives. 
But Jesus, again, was essentially good, so he went about doing good. He could do nothing but good. He never did anything that was not good. He was a good man. If you want to say somebody was a good man without any reservation, you could say it about the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He went about doing good. That summarized the life of Jesus. He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. That's kind of interesting to me. And of all the miracles that Jesus performed, Peter would mention this one. Healing all that were oppressed of the devil. There were those during the ministry and life of Christ that were oppressed of the devil. And Jesus healed every single one of them. There was not one time he didn't heal someone who was oppressed of the devil. And the devil, of course, was the chief enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the chief adversary of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not one time did Jesus ever attempt to cast a devil out of somebody that the devil was not cast out. Not one time did he ever purpose to cleanse somebody and cast out an unclean spirit that he was not completely victorious, completely successful in casting out that unclean spirit. Not one time. And of course that applies to all the other miracles. Christ never tried to do anything. Uh, that's language that doesn't belong to Jesus. There's language that just doesn't belong to him, such as uh, Jesus tried to do this. That doesn't belong to Jesus. That belongs to you and me. We try to do things, right? Uh, Jesus would like to have done this, but was hindered. No, no, Jesus would never hinder, okay? Jesus was always where he was supposed to be every single day. Now, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and told the church at Thessalonica that he would have come unto them once and again, but he was hindered by Satan. Paul, the wonderful apostle, could be hindered and was hindered by the devil himself. But the Lord Jesus Christ was never hindered. No matter how hard the devil tried, he never hindered Jesus. He healed all that were oppressed of the devil. Now, we could go to several examples, but I think if there was anybody who was ever oppressed of the devil, it was a man by the name of Legion. And we can read about him in the fifth chapter of Mark. Legion. We find where he was in the land of the Gadareans, and Jesus went there. And we find this description given of him. It says he lived among the dead in the mountains. That was his habitation among the mountains, among the dead. It says men tried to tame him. Uh, he had fetters and chains. Fetters were ankle, um, uh, you know, chains. Go around your ankles. And he, they would chain him with fetters and, and, and shackles and things. But it says no man could tame him. Now, these were many people who tried to do this. He was just one person. But no man could tame this man. He, he was a terror in the community. He, he didn't have any clothes on. He dwelt among the dead. I mean, uh, this was a, a very unsavory character from the standpoint of his appearance, his activities, and how he lived his life, etc. And so no man could tame him. Now, a man in this condition is somebody, I think, that pictures an unregenerate type person. And no man can tame that person. You know, Jesus come riding upon an ass, the colt, the foal of an ass, that never man had ridden. In other words, he wasn't tamed. Jesus got on an ass that had never been broken, had never been tamed, and he never made one effort to buck him off. He never made one effort to get him off his back because Jesus just immediately took care of that. He just, uh, you know... 
cause the nature of that animal to be in reverse of what it normally would be. So the Lord Jesus Christ comes on the scene. And the Lord did one encounter what all the men on numerous other occasions could not do. He came and did what they could not do. He's going to cast the devils out of him. And he says to the unclean spirit to depart out of him. Then he asked him his name. He says, my name is Legion, for we be many, a lot of them. And they requested to the Lord Jesus Christ, um, you know, uh, to be uh, cast into the sea. And the Lord answered their request. And they all ran up a steep hill, a cliff, into the sea. And they all perished. He gave them their request. And the people of the land, there was a witness of this, and he ran back to the people in the city and told them everything that happened. You know, what do you think their reaction was? Well, you, of course, you should know. You've heard preaching on this, and you should have read it. But if you hadn't, wonder what you, their reaction would be. You'd probably think, well, thank God somebody had the power to do something about it. Thank the Lord that this man is no longer a lunatic. Thank the Lord he's no longer possessed with devils. But it was not. They got upset with Jesus. They got upset with Jesus. He ruined their economy. That was a lot of uh, swine <laughs> that went down that hill and, and went over that cliff and into the sea. And they were not pleased, and they wanted Jesus to leave, wanted Jesus to leave their coast. You know what Jesus did? He left. See, that's what really concerns me more than anything else, perhaps, about our country. Our country is telling the Lord that they want him to leave. Our country is telling the Lord that he's no longer welcome. You know, they're not going to put the Ten Commandments in, up anymore in the courthouse. They're not going to put them up anymore in the schoolyard or schoolhouse. Um, you know, and they're taking, in God we trust, uh, off of license plates thing. You know, if you get a license plate now in Sumner County, you can still get one in God we trust. They, it's your choice. And so we got ours in God we trust. You know, you have to have a magnifying glass to see it. I'm serious. I mean, you can't, it's small. It's real small. You can't hardly see in God we trust. Oh, they put it on there, but they put it on there when nobody will see it. You've got to really be looking for it and zero in on it to see it. So what's Jesus do? When nobody wants him, he leaves, right? He's not going to stay where he's not wanted. Now, I know there's a lot of people still want him. I trust we want him. We want him here at Bethel. The Primitive Baptists want him, sure, and many of God's people in, in other affiliations. No, I know they want him. They want him, but there's so many of the ungodly and the wicked do not want the presence of God. They do not want the Lord and Jesus Christ. And so they didn't want him there, and they, they told him basically, leave us alone and, and go. And so Jesus did. Now, Peter tells Cornelius how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, not with literal oil, but with the Spirit of God that came down in his baptism. And he went about doing good. And part of what he went about doing good was healing those oppressed of the devil, and that is specified here. But back up just for a second when it says, who went about doing good? I told you he was essentially good. Well, you remember the, the lawyer that came to Jesus? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this. We go to Mark chapter 10. And in Mark 10, you find where this rich young ruler came to Jesus and he addressed him like this. He says, good master. 
What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The Lord asked him a question in response. He says, why callest thou me good? Why would Jesus ask him that? Because by nature, nobody's good. Jesus, the only one, essentially good. So why did he call him good? Good master, what shall I do? And then the Lord said, thou shalt keep the commandments. Thou knowest the commandments. Thou shalt not uh, kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery, etc. He gives him commandments number five through nine. You see, the Ten Commandments are broken up into two parts. The first four is, is vertical between God and men, and the last six is horizontal between men. So he starts with Commandment 5 and goes to Commandment 9. He leaves Commandment 10 off. Commandment 10, thou shalt not covet. He gives him 5 through 9. Now, I want to look at that uh, statement again the Lord made. Why callest thou me good? If he was calling him good because he thought and believed that he was God manifest in the flesh and essentially good, then okay. But if he was calling him good because he thought there was good in men apart from God, he was wrong. Why callest thou me good? There's only one that's good. That's God. So if you're interested in me in that regard, you're correct. But if not, you're not correct. The young ruler, he said, I've kept them all. I've kept all these from my youth up. He didn't understand what the Lord taught in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ taught that you can transgress God's law and transgress his commandments inwardly in the heart, just can't, like you can outwardly in a physical way. He didn't understand that. See, he lied there. <laughs> he broke one of them right there because I know he had not kept these laws from his youth up, not in perfection, and God demands perfection. He expects perfection. If he couldn't keep it perfect, then he hadn't kept the law. I've kept these things from my youth up. He said, well, there's one you lack. And I don't know what the man was, the old man thinking. He's probably thinking, well, all right, well, what was that? I'm sure I kept that one just as well as I did the other ones. Remember now, he's a rich young ruler. He's rich. He's got power and authority. Rich, young ruler, he's young, he's three things, the world says. So if you got that, if you're rich and got authority and young on top of that, why, you just couldn't have it any better. Well, see, you can lose all three. You will lose one of them unless you die young. <laughs> I'll tell you that. You will lose being young over time. It takes a long time, longer for some than others. But anyway, you, uh, you'll lose that eventually. And people have voted in and voted out all the time, aren't they? They got power today, no power tomorrow. And then you can have a lot of money today and the stock market crash and one thing or another and you got nothing. This man was rich, he was young, he was a ruler. He thought he kept God's commandments to total perfection. The Lord said, you lack one thing. Go and sell what thou hast and give to the poor and come and follow me. You know what he told Legion? Legion wanted to follow him. After he cast all those devils out, the Lord told Legion to go home. But he didn't say go home and say nothing. He says go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and had compassion on you. You, you give a witness. Uh, you give a testimony. Be a witness of what great things God has done for you. He straightened his life out. After Jesus done cast the devils out, the next picture we have of him, and he is clothed. And sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. 
Jesus gave him his right mind. He put clothes on. He set the feet on Jesus. Jesus said, you go home and tell your friends what great things the Lord has done for you and have had compassion on you. But over here, the rich young ruler, he says, come and follow me. Go sell what you got, give to the poor, come and follow me and you shall have riches. You know, he, he, he had riches, but he'd have a different kind, different kind of riches, the real riches, the, the, the meaningful riches of life. That, that's the difference. When the Bible speaks about poverty, sometimes it speaks about somebody who really doesn't have anything. Sometimes it's talking about somebody who feels poor within their own selves. Like the Lord said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes it talks about riches. It's talking about literal riches. Other times it's talking about being rich in knowledge and understanding of the truth. Being rich in the blessings of the Lord. Being active in the Lord's house and the Lord's kingdom. Come and follow me. And the Bible says he went away very sorrowful. But there's something the Lord says about him that's highly important. He went away very sorrowful because he had great riches. The Bible says the Lord loved him. See, you can't make this man out to be anything but a born-again child of God. <laughs> he was a child of God, didn't have his priorities right. The, if the Lord loved him, he was one of his. He came to the right man, came to the right man with the right question, got the right answer, but he went away sorrowful. Now, how is that for you? You, you got a question, you need the right answer, so you got to go to the right source, right? If you want the right answer to the right question, you go to the right source. He went to the right source with the right question, the question he had in his mind with his understanding, or lack of understanding, right source, right mind, I mean, right question, got the right answer, anyway, way sorrowful, because he wasn't willing to do what Jesus told him. And we finish up with the last expression. For God was with him. Nicodemus recognized that. John chapter 3 verse 1. Nicodemus came to the Lord by night. And he said master. We know that our teacher come from God. Because no man can do the miracles thou doest. Except God be with him. Nicodemus recognized that God was with this man. Well he couldn't do the miracles. He was doing. Peter says and God was with him. Now question. If God the Father was with his son, God the Son, during his earthly life. How important it is for us to desire the companionship of the Lord. To have the Lord to go with us. To help direct our steps. To walk with us, to protect us. God is a long life journey. He was with Jesus. We saw how he was with Joshua, like he was with Moses. We saw how he was with Joseph, did we not? How he was with Jacob. The first of seven times the Lord speaks to Jacob, he tells him, I'm with thee. The last thing he says, number seven, I am with thee. The importance of being, of the Lord being with his children for us to be prosperous and fruitful. So, and God was with him. I can remember reading that many, many years ago and thinking, and God was with him. <laughs> Why did God have to be with him? He was God manifest in the flesh because he was humanity as well as divinity.